Good morning, everybody. I have the pleasure of teaching you this morning and walking you through the book of Galatians, but before I do that, I want to get to a few questions that came in from last week and do my best at answering those. The first one that came in was, uh, Paul says the kingdom of David will be restored, and what is the difference, I'm paraphrasing the question as I see it, uh, what is the difference between the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God? You see, the kingdom of David often referred to in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, it speaks more of the kingdom of God. Short answer is they're the same. The way that they're the same, if you want to kind of trace it scripturally, I'll give you a few examples. One is you go to 2 Samuel 7, and that's where God establishes his covenant with King David and says, I will establish your rule and your seed, your progeny, you know, your son will reign forever over the kingdom. And so that's where you get this idea. If you then look at the end of the book of Amos, actually, like Amos 9, the end of that, it speaks of, some, it speaks of restoring the tabernacle of David. If you trace historically what happens to Israel, that covenant gets to a point where it looks like it's, it's not going to it doesn't look like it's being carried out. It doesn't look like God is doing what he said he would do because Israel is oppressed under these other rulers. And Amos sees this in the future and he says that after all this occurs, God will resurrect or reestablish David's tabernacle is how he puts it. And that, that is quoted in the New Testament by Peter at Pentecost. And Paul also quotes that passage from Amos. So they are the same thing. Jesus is referred to as the son of David, so they're the same thing. Make sense? Good. Great question. Next, judgment day, everyone will be judged for the evil they have done. Do the evil things that each of us have done that we have acknowledged and asked for forgiveness for, will they still be judged on judgment day? Haven't we been forgiven for those sins, and how do we know if we have been repentant enough? I want to answer this in two ways. First off, Understanding repentance, repentance is not about, uh, it's not about being right with God. Repentance does not make you right with God. Just the fact that I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and turn to Christ, that is not the work that makes me right with God. It is what repentance faces you toward that makes you right with God, and that is Jesus. So on judgment day, as the quote said, the, the judgments that will occur will occur in one of two ways. Either you will be judged be, as being apart from Christ, and that's not a good thing, or you will be judged based on being in Christ, and that's a great thing. And it is Christ who takes care of sin in that situation. So your, what Christ has done through his first coming Fast forwards in terms of its goodness at his second coming, which is what we typically will consider judgment day. So what we have now and the forgiveness we have now will still be true, okay? So hope that makes sense. Understand that repentance is simply, uh, it's a word that's used for turning. So repentance is either you're turned away from or you're turned toward Jesus. And that's really where the forgiveness and judgment is really about being right with God, and Jesus is that. So you should not get hung up on 
am I repentant enough? You cannot be or not, you cannot be or not be enough. It, it does, it, it's bleh. I don't even know how to say it. it. Repentance has nothing to do with it, except for the fact that your turns toward Christ are away from it. It is only through Christ that you are forgiven, and it, judgment is just, uh, apart from Christ, that's where the fear would come in. But if you're in Christ, it doesn't matter how far away that he is, as long as you're facing him and moving towards him, then you're on the right track, but not because you're doing the movement. It's all about what he did. Makes sense, I hope. Uh, third question. Okay, this one is so, I have to do this like lickety split, but this one's really tough. Can you dif- differentiate between evil and sin? Answer is yes and no. Sin is evil, but it is not the totality of evil, maybe. Um, and, and here's why. In the Bible, the Bible will speak of sin. It'll use different words that get translated as sin, but sin is always a term referred to people or humanity. It is the evil that humanity can do. However, it would appear, and this is theoretical, and I would love to spend hours over coffee and talk through the night on this, um, it would appear that evil existed prior to sin entering the world. And it depends on how you define evil, though. So, for instance, if you go back to Genesis, how do you describe the serpent coming into the garden if sin is not in existence yet? Does that make sense? So it would appear that sin as evil does not apply to beings other than humans. If you think of the devil and all these angelic beings, the Bible does not tell us much, really, or hardly anything about the backstory to where Satan comes from. We get most of that from the early church fathers after, you know, they, they... kind of came up with theories. Some of them may be good, maybe not, but it's still theoretical. The real thing to understand, though, is that evil appears to have existed prior to sin, and that sin is only the evil that really applies to the human realm. Evil itself exists in a different way. But here's the thing that I'd really want you to focus on when it comes to evil. Evil cannot exist apart from what is good. This is the weakness and the frailty of evil. God, in the Bible, we get the picture that everything God creates, he says it's good, and he says all of it together is very good, and he does not create evil. Evil is merely the distortion of what God created to be good. This is true for sin, and this is true, uh, many would argue, for uh, the devil himself, because God created the devil as many uh, historical accounts of this, the way he develops, uh, he was originally a good thing and he fell from that, right? But God created it all good and evil is merely the distortion of it. And this is the weakness of it because evil cannot exist from the good things God creates. The sin that we do is merely a distortion of something good, whether that be Uh, earthly possessions, the creation God has given us, whether that be sex, anything, these are all good things, and sin is merely the distortion of something that was intended to be good. Does that make sense? So human sin is evil, but it is not the totality of evil, maybe. Because I don't know if sin applies to that realm or not. It's hard to say, and it's all theoretical because the Bible's not really interested in telling us. It's very fascinating, though, isn't it? All right, but that's not what I got to talk about today. 
All right, let's get into the meat of Galatians. All right. First thing is, the book of Galatians is unique for the fact that it is not written to a city or a person, which is what all of Paul's other letters are doing. It is written to a territory with many cities that Paul visited on his first and second missionary trips in particular. And this area that I've highlighted here signifies where that area is. You can kind of see where it's located. It's kind of central Asia Minor, more towards the um, more towards, well, you see Tarsus there, right? Paul's from Tarsus, or Saul, right? He's there. And so it's very close in geographic, geographically to that area. Um, so that's where Galatia is, and there's all kinds of debates about which cities and all that kind of stuff, which really doesn't, it's, it's really not important to the understanding the book itself, because regardless of whether you think he wrote to the which area in Galatia, the content of Galatians stays the same, and the Acts account still stays the same. It's all really good. But if, you, if you're curious about this kind of stuff, you can see him traveling through Galatia in Acts 13, 14, and 15, 16 on his first and second missionary journeys. There are three missionary journeys recorded in Acts, all right? And then uh, you could argue, uh, this is me not taking a definitive stance on this, it's around 50 AD that it's written. Some would say a little more. Some might say a little less. And people will argue back and forth. But it's good enough. Say around 50. It's good enough. All right. So that's just a little bit of what's going on. To give you an idea of what's going on in the letter, Paul, when he comes into Galatia, he goes through and he starts his church, these churches there, right? These are churches Paul started. And... What happens is very interesting because he starts them and then he leaves. And the context for Galatians is after he leaves, people within the church, now this is important, these are not outsiders. These are not, I'm going to use the terms Jews and Christians because I think we all understand the distinction, but please understand that they would not have known those distinctions. They would not have known kind of the difference between what a Jew and a Christian was. Christians did not call themselves Christians at this time, I would argue, and many would. Uh, they still saw themselves under the, the canopy of Judaism to an extent. They just were, you know, unique in the fact that they were following a certain Messiah, but this wasn't unique in Judaism. Lots of people in Judaism claimed to follow different Messiahs, and they were all wrong, right? But uh, except for Christians, they were the right ones. But Jews would, you know, kind of didn't know what to do with them. But you still see Christians, I'm using this, you know, as a term that doesn't really apply to the time, but it's the way we kind of refer to it. You see Christians going to temple, you see Christians going to synagogue, There's, they're mix, intermixing with, they're still, you know, they're still practicing certain Jewish things. They still consider themselves in that, that veil, if you will. And this is important because what happens at Galatia, within these churches, is there are certain individuals, I'm going to call them circumcisers, okay? I'm going to get away from that Jewish-Christian distinction. This would be like certain people at Fellowship of Faith. Let's say there's this faction that rises up and starts to say, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, right? These are things, but they would be wrong. But they would try to, they would try to like railroad everyone to, if you don't do this, you're not really in. You're not really a part of this. 
And this is why it happens. Paul goes in, shares the gospel, which I'll get to in a moment. And then these circumcisers step in and after the fact, and they say, yeah, I know what Paul said, but. Now, I want to talk about that but because the letter to Galatians begins with Paul. It's autobiographical in many ways. Paul begins by giving you a resume of himself. I want to give you a matrix for the letter, and then I'm going to pick apart this, and I'm going to show you how these circumcisers and Paul, the, the letter is focused on Paul responding to them and yet giving a firm insight into the truth based on the distortion that the circumcisers have given. That's a mouthful, but hopefully you're following, okay? Now, this little thing I put up here, you see the A, B, C, D, C, B, A? I would prefer you to see this as a circle. So like the A would be the outer layer of that circle. And then as you start to move in, or maybe a globe, like a sphere, as you move in, there are different layers to the letter. The, the next layer you might say is circumcision, the circumcision issue. And Paul will talk about that and then he'll give a response to it. But that's another layer. Do you see what I'm saying? You're, you're moving inside a globe, if you will. Does that make sense? Kind of give me a head nod. Because if, if you're lost on this, like I'm lost. Okay, good. Then you move in even further. And then he starts talking about, it's not circumcision is just an inroad to then having to keep the whole law. Don't be fooled, guys. They want you to be circumcised. But that's just a way of saying you're going to have to start keeping the whole law. That's just putting your toe in, but eventually you're going to be over your head. You see that? That's the next layer. And then finally, the center is what Paul's argument is really focused on. He's saying that the circumcisers coming in is a betrayal of the gospel. So you see these layers. I'm going to begin with Paul's apostolic authority. And here's what's happening. Here are a few. Someone's playing a trick on me. Uh, you see Paul begin with this resume stuff. Now, notice how he begins. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Why would Paul begin his letter this way? Well, notice he says, not from men, but through men. What the circumcisers are doing, they're coming in and they're saying, listen, this Paul guy, yeah, he's an apostle, but he's not one of the 12 and everything he learned, he learned from the 12, but he's distorting it, okay? So you can't really trust what the guy's saying fully. Let us tell you where he's mistaken. So notice how, what Paul says. He says, I am not an apostle through men or from men. He says, I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Notice where he's establishing his authority, okay? Second, notice what he says next. For I did not receive it, the gospel, from any man. Okay, they're telling you that I learned this stuff from the other guys, the, the, you know, the 12 or the other apostles. No, 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 I didn't learn this through them. And if you read Galatians 1 and 2, he will give you insights. He says, I was in Arabia, I was doing this. Yeah, yeah, I met with James, but I was talking to him. The guy wasn't teaching me. So he's trying to establish his authority. What are, you, what are they trying to teach you guys in Galatia, right? And then he says, 
not from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You see that argument, right? This is from God. This is not from people. I didn't learn it. It was given to me from God. And from those who seem to be influential, that's the other apostles, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential add nothing to me. So really what Paul's saying is, the other apostles, I didn't get it from them, but they're on board with me. They're not against me, and I'm not distorting anything. They would be on board with me. They're not on board with your circumcisers. You see that? Yes, no, maybe. Blink stairs. Okay. Do you see that? All right, great. So he's, he's setting himself up. He's setting the stage for it. Now, Here's what he begins to say about the circumcisers. The circumcisers, as I'm referring to them, this faction that's arisen who want them to keep the Torah, it's it's larger than this circumcision. It's much broader than that. Remember I said circumcision is just the getting your toe wet. Really, they want to do like a table fellowship and eat kosher, and they're starting to put all of these stipulations on them. There's, There's more to this. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, this is that center thing I referred to, distorting or betraying the gospel of Jesus. Paul referred to that often. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul uses the harshest possible language you could use against these individuals. Now, remember, these are people within the church, and who, people who consider themselves Jesus followers. They are not people who feel like they are trying to take away anything from Jesus. They, they feel like they're doing the right thing. But Paul uses some of the harshest language for them. He, in, in a very terse way, he says, to hell with them. Almost in a literal sense, he says, hand them over to Satan. He is... I mean, this is like that email you get that just like tongue lashes you out the wazoo, okay? And you're like, whoa, you know, like this is, you, you don't, he doesn't mince words. <laughs> you know, he's, he's not holding back. He's very passionate about what he's doing here. Now, as you're working down, you see that they're teaching a false teaching. Paul then goes one step more and starts to unpack and pull out the false arguments that they're making. So he moves from, who are these people who are, he'll say they're bewitching you. They put a little spell on you guys. What's going on here? I came in, you had it, and now you're like going 180 on me or something like that. So then he gets to the actual teaching itself on these guys. All right, now let's learn a little bit more about them. He, he uses some language that's very potent. These false teachers in Galatia church, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Okay, I wish they'd castrate themselves. I wish they'd cut it all off, right? If you know what circumcision is, that's pretty humorous uh, as far as it goes. But there's a little bit more, I would argue, that's going on here. In Galatia, it was a very common um, practice to worship a god known as Sibeli, Sibeli, however you want to pronounce it. I prefer Sibyl, but evidently that's not how you say it. Uh, this would be almost, um, don't take this too far, but kind of if you think of Mother Earth, that's, that's kind of the sense that you would get. She's a goddess. And the priests 
of this cult would castrate themselves. So in a sense, what Paul is saying is these circumcisers are as bad as a pagan priest. That's how bad this is. See what I mean? This is horrible. This is, not, this is not just a little issue, guys. You're losing the focus. All right. When it comes to the law, Paul's argument is tearing down the... I swear that... I do not know what's going on with that thing. Uh, I don't want that. Where am I? This is ridiculous. Yeah, it's right there. Holy cow. Um, I swear technology's out to get me. So the law, when Paul talks about it, he's tearing down the circumciser's argument. He's taking it apart and he's showing where the flaws are. So I've set this little table up to show you what the circumcisers are doing with the law as Paul sees it. Um, He's describing to you what the circumcisers are doing. And then on the other side, you see literally what, so Paul's showing you what they're doing, and then he's showing you the reality, okay? So the circumcisers want this law thing, which is the Torah, the Mosaic law, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament is kind of what it's referring to. And he's saying that the reason they want you to circumcise yourself, which only applies to the males, is so that they don't, it's, it's a segregating kind of a thing. It's, we don't want to be unclean. They're still living under these ceremonial laws that are no longer applicable. Because God, through Jesus, has opened up faith to everyone. He's opened up the door to everyone. And Paul's saying, that's ridiculous. Why are you still doing that? So the circumcisers would agree with this. They would say, yeah, it's segregating. We've got to segregate ourselves from this other stuff. But why are they doing it? Paul will say they're doing it because they don't want to be persecuted from other Jews. They don't want that persecution. But Paul will say it is not, they're trying to, they're trying to argue that this will be good because we don't have to be persecuted. But he's saying what it really is, it's not freedom, it's slavery. Their freedom from persecution is really just a slavery to sin. You see how he's playing off of that? And then he'll say, they're doing it because they want to be accepted, but by being accepted from the Jews, they are simultaneously rejecting the gospel. You see how there's this play going on? Paul's showing the flaws through what they're, they're doing, and then he's showing the reality of what it means. Their logic is flawed, this is what it really means, guys. They're trying to bring you into this. So far, so good? All right, I put it over here because it's going to blow up on me. Let's keep going. All right, Paul will talk about the law this way. He will talk about it as a pedagogus. A pedagogus is a Greek word, and it means babysitter. All right? He says, the law was a babysitter. It was only necessary, it's only necessary for children. And you were children, Paul will say. But he, understand, he is not using this term in a 
demeaning way to the law. Paul holds the law in high esteem. You know what they say about Mary Poppins, right? Mary Poppins is like the ideal babysitter, is she not? Who would not want a babysitter like Mary Poppins? I mean, come on. She sings, she dances, she flies around with it. I mean, this is great if you're a kid. So Paul will describe the law very similarly. You know what they say about Mary Poppins? She's practically perfect in every way. The law is not the problem. The problem is us, right? And he'll say, I mean, think about the story of Mary Poppins. It would be a very lame story if she was still there at the end, right? How are you going to end that movie? They're like getting older. They're like 30-year-olds and Mary Poppins is still like putting them to bed, you know, singing songs to them. They're jumping through chalk. You're like, what in the world? This is getting to be a really morbid, lame story. The beauty of Mary Poppins' story is that she leaves at the end. And that's what Paul says. A babysitter's only good as a child. Eventually, you don't need a babysitter anymore. You grow up. And he says, through Christ, you are now an adult. Through Christ, you no longer need the law. You no longer need that babysitter because Christ has set us free from that. Right? Children, children are slaves. <laughs> they are. All right? Children, they do not have the same rights and freedoms as an adult. Believe me, I have three of them, all right? And I don't tell them they're slaves that often, but often I'm kind of like, you know, there's certain things that I would like to, <laughs> you think of slavery and you go, sometimes you, you put like confines on what they can do, you kind of keep oversight over them, you know, freedom comes gradually, you got to kind of prove yourself, Right? So that's, that's kind of the analogy that we're working with here. So Paul will speak of it this way, the law. The point is not that the law is bad. The point is that you are. You're a sinner. So far, so good. Now, this all starts to wrap up as you work down. And now Paul turns the tables. You see how in this, this layout, Paul then backtracks. What was, so you've got the betrayal of the gospel, which is all over the place. He refers to that all throughout Galatians. But then you get to Christ's law equals freedom. We'll look at C up above. He says that the circumcisers teach a law, teach that slavery to the law. He says there's a new law. Let's look at that. He says there's a new law in Christ. Now, this is not a replacement of the old law. It is a new law through Christ. It's, it's not, but it's not tacked on. It doesn't undo the old law. It fulfills it, right? There's a certain way that you have to understand what Paul's doing. First off, he says, the law served a purpose, but when Christ came, he, he gave us freedom. The law was slavery. Christ brings us freedom. There's two ways that freedom gets described, and I'm going to do this through a United States versus Europe model, okay? Both places are free or focus on being free places, right? But the people will describe the freedom differently. The United States will often be lumped together in a, in a very generalized way as a free to. I'm free to do, freedom means I'm free to do whatever I want. Now, that's an over extreme, but that's kind of the idea, Nobody can tell me what to do because I'm free, right? That's the, that's the typical way freedom in America gets portrayed. Whether you agree with it or not, that's not the point. This is kind of the way that it gets portrayed. 
Europe, freedom, they, their perception of it is much different. They see it as a freedom from. I mean, think about all the world wars. Where did they happen? All the atrocities that happened. They see it as a freedom from that. Their idea of freedom is we don't want that. We want to be free from that. Paul will speak of both. He speaks of Christ's law as a freedom to and a freedom from. He says it's a freedom from the Mosaic law. Look, freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You're free from that. You're free from that. Notice what he also says. For you are called the freedom brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And he continues on, right? He says, Christ's law is a freedom to love. So although you're free from the Mosaic law, it's also a freedom to love God and others, right? Mostly he's speaking of loving your neighbor. So that's the juxtaposition, if you will, that Paul set up. Now, here's, the, here's what I think is the most remarkable part about what Paul does. Paul then moves into, these guys are so hung up on circumcision. They're so hung up on an outward mark of the body that identifies you with a certain group. He says, circumcision and uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. Don't try and undo it if you are, and don't try and go do it if you aren't. This is Paul's argument. He's like, this is ridiculous. This has nothing to do with anything. But he does do something that I think is very classy, very witty, and very poignant. He doesn't just leave it at that. He says, You want a mark? I'll give you a mark, right? He then turns the tables on it and he says, The mark of some, a Christ follower is not circumcision, it's crucifixion. Notice what he says. He says, I, Paul, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What's important? It's crucifixion, it's not circumcision. It's Christ's crucifixion. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's not circumcision, guys. Jesus was crucified and you were crucified with him. Those are the marks. Those are the marks you should be focused on. Not literally, but in a, in a figurative sense, right? It's not like we're walking around with a stigmata, although he does use that, and we'll get to that. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul, not, notice how all of those, those layers are being combined right here. Paul is still focusing on his apostolic authority. He's saying, I, 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 this is the mark. You want a mark? Look at me. Look at the marks I bear, right? They're the marks of Jesus. Galatians 6, these are, if you turn to Galatians and you look at the very end of chapter 6, this is how he ends. He says, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The marks there is literally stigmata, as you would see it translated, right? The stigmata, you might remember, see like those images, the actual holes in the hands and feet. That's not what he means. But it is fascinating that Paul could do this. He could go, you want, you want to see the outward marks of faith? Well, here's where I got the lashes, guys, Paul will say. Corinthians, he does this huge litany of all the things that he's endured. It's another passage that's him establishing his authority, but he's establishing it through being persecuted and suffering. 
What are the circumcisers trying to do? They're trying to avoid that. What is Paul doing? He's saying, no, the gospel means that. You suffer as a Christian, do you not? Suffering is part of this, guys. To try and circumcise yourself as a way to avoid it, that's a whole distortion of what the gospel is all about, not only for Jesus, but what it means to be a Jesus follower. You, he says, look at me. I, I have lashes. This is where I was stoned, guys. Not in a modern sense, but in an ancient sense, okay? This is where the rocks were thrown at me, if that works better for you. This is where I got hit in the head with that one. You know, he can literally point to himself and go, I bear the marks of Jesus on my body, and these are the marks that's important. Not in a literal way, but do you see how he's taking circumcision and he's going, no, 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 that's not what it's about. It's not about avoiding this. It's about enduring. I mean, this is what it is. Look what Jesus did. You're following in his footsteps. He says, what happened to me is going to happen to you. He even says about Paul directly, he has to suffer much for my name. I mean, I know that seems to really stink, but that's really what we're being called to as Christians. We're, we're not... We're not, following Jesus is, is not a cushy life. It's, it's not about that. And, and to try and create something, to try and create these kind of stipulations that make it like safe, nice, and easy, that's really what Galatians is railing against. Now, it's not saying go out and look for it. <laughs> Don't hear me say that. But it is focusing in on this as a very intentional matter, and I think it has a lot, it resonates a lot, I think, for us in the church today. This is not just a letter that applied only to the Galatian church at that time. This is a human issue. This is something we all struggle with. We all create these, these laws that we set up as necessary to be a Jesus follower. It's called sin. That's, that's basically what it looks like. It's a distortion of God's reality. I'd ask you to rise. Just get on your feet. Take a moment. I know for myself, as I reflect on Galatians, I'm often brought face-to-face with how I betray the gospel, with how I betray what Christ has done. I don't like to suffer. I don't know about you. I don't like uh, the idea that it, it's not a safe, easy road, but Jesus says the road is narrow, and only a few enter through it, but the road to destruction is broad, it's wide, and many are entering through that. Ever squeeze through a narrow space? It's not comfortable. That's what the Galatian, that's what Paul brings the Galatian church face-to-face with. Remember the gospel and walk in the way of Jesus. Just for a moment, take a moment and reflect on the ways that I know I betray the gospel, maybe that you betray the gospel, that the church can as a whole betray the gospel and just bring that and lay it before God.